all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. You're listening to a podcast of Relatively Speaking on MPB Think Radio. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Good morning. This is Relatively Speaking, the show all about you and your family. I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Well, every April is Autism Awareness Month, and though we've had the pandemic and so much else going on this year, we still want to give it the attention that autism spectrum disorder needs. So today, we'll wrap up the month by exploring new research in autism with Dr. Courtney Walker, psychologist at the Center for the Advancement of Youth, and we'll visit with a child advocate that many of you know and a parent of a son with autism, Pam Dollar. We'll talk about what's new and what you should do if you think someone you love may have autism or if you're struggling to find services, struggling with that individual in your home, trying to figure out what you need to do, we're here. Um, you have three of us who can answer your questions. I'll take the medical end. Dr. Walker will take the psychological end. And Pam will take the, the parent and the child advocacy and adult advocacy. She works in both areas. Um, but before I pull them in... I wanted to just do a little bit of an overview about autism. Just as a reminder, I think many of you have heard of autism, childhood autism, autism spectrum disorder. Um, The term Asperger's um, has essentially gone away, and now we call it a whole spectrum. So you might have an individual with severe autism, or you might have an individual with very mild Symptoms, but it is called a developmental disorder that affects communication and behavior. And you can diagnose autism at any age, but we by far and away prefer, if we can, to diagnose it early on. Um, Typically, in in cases except for the very mildest cases, um, generally you can see the symptoms in the first two years of life. And according to the Center for Disease Control, about one in every 59 children is thought to have autism. Now, our numbers aren't that high in this state, though they've gotten higher. And part of that is probably not because we have fewer children with autism, but because the fact that the diagnosis is often not made. And we'll talk about the why in that as we move along a little bit. 
It is more common in boys than girls. It seems that it's about three to four times more common in boys than girls. And um, many girls with autism may, spectrum disorder may exhibit, if they have mild issues, fewer symptoms. Maybe they're just quieter. Um, But there are many um, young girls who are also severely affected. So basically, let me just remind you, I think there's a lot of confusion as to what autism is. But the things that as you think about who has autism and who doesn't, there are some hallmarks. Um, Difficulty with communication and interaction with other people is at the top of the list. And that's not just oral communication. There are many children who don't have autism who have speech and language delay. But we are talking about other types of communication, communication with your body, communication with your facial expressions, communication with voice inflection. All of that can be impaired in individuals with autism. Another standout is a restricted area of interest. So someone who who can only talk or think about certain things. They may have repetitive behaviors. Not all children with autism have hand flapping and twirling about, but many do. Not all children who have hand flapping and twirling have autism. So you're putting all of these symptoms uh, together. But the symptoms typically do um, make it difficult um, for a child to interact, to function in regular social gatherings, and to function at school, or for the adult to often function at work. And like I said at the very beginning, it is a spectrum. There's a wide variation. And so really no two children are exactly alike who have autism spectrum disorder. And so we have to keep keep that in mind. And and so as we move through how do you we'll talk as we move through the show about how you diagnose it and and how you treat it and um and what can be done to help the symptoms. But I want to throw out the phone number. That's one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can send an email to family at mpbonline.org as we are talking through um, autism spectrum what it is, the difficulties you've had, perhaps maybe you even have a question about a family member as to or, or a child you know as to whether or not they could have autism. We can talk to you about it today. We can talk through the symptoms. Perhaps we can talk to you about where you could get some help. So give us a call. With that said, I want to welcome our, our first guest, Dr. Courtney Walker. She's, she's a revisitor here with us because, um, she is just a, a wealth of knowledge and I love working with Courtney. So welcome, Courtney. Thanks for joining the show today. Thanks for having me. Glad to be back. Well, would you please, I I talked just uh, a little bit about the symptoms, and as we move along, we can go into greater detail, but 
Why don't we start off uh, a little bit about maybe the cause? You know, as as a parent, often when a parent has a child with any kind of difficulty, any kind of diagnosis, even if it's mild, many times they have a question as to whether or not there's something they could have done to prevent it. Um, I know there's a lot of research out there. Um, we still don't have a cure. We can talk about the treatments. But first, let's talk about uh, some of the new studies that are looking into the why, why people have autism spectrum. Do you, do you want to start that off a bit? Yeah, sure. And so just a disclaimer, I am not a geneticist. I am not um, a huge researcher in this field, but I consume this literature because I see a lot of kids clinically who are on the autism spectrum. So let me put that caveat (laughs) out there first. Um, And of course, if any of the callers have any more specific questions, um, we can help with those more detailed uh, questions. But yeah, so a lot of research, um, specifically um, looking into the causal mechanisms of autism, has been conducted um, over the past few years. And one of the leading kind of research studies out there for causes of autism is the SPARK study, so S-P-A-R-K. And so SPARK is really the largest genetic study of autism that's ever been conducted. And so I believe, let me see how many people were enrolled the last time I checked. Um, Okay, so last time I checked, over 275,000 families with a child on the autism spectrum or a person on the autism spectrum has joined this study and kind of donated their genetic material to these researchers so they can start to look into genetic um, causes of autism. And Dr. Walker, I just wanted to make a comment. We in Mississippi at our center were enrolling individuals for, what, two or three years, right? Yeah, and we still, you know, we still are. So if anybody's ever interested, um, they can just reach out. Or if they want to learn more about the study, it's called Spark for Autism. .org is, is the website. Um, but yeah, we, you know, we really try to encourage folks from Mississippi to be a part of that sample so we can, you know, understand, you know, autism within our own community. And just as an aside, um, I don't know if uh, the listeners know this, but the first ever documented case of autism spectrum disorder was actually in Mississippi. Right. Um, and so, that's kind of a interesting little fact about autism in Mississippi specifically. But kind of back to some of the um, causal uh, influences of ASD. So based on all this research that the SPARC um, folks have done, we do know now that autism is highly heritable. Um, a lot of the known genetic causes for autism are mostly due to inherited variants of genes instead of de novo mutations, so kind of like random mutations, um, but they're still looking into that. Um, and so of the people enrolled in the SPARK study, one in 10 have a clear genetic explanation for autism. And they found when I pulled this, uh, mind you, this has changed since I pulled it, um, they looked about I think around 10,000 different genes that are associated with autism. 
and they have led to the discovery for, for about 50 particular genes that are related to ASD risk. And that number has actually, I think, increased by about 15% since, this, um, since these results were last published. And so that just kind of speaks to, there's just a lot going on looking into those causes and we're finding out more and more and more each and every day. Right. Um, right. So. And, and another, another issue is that there are times when you'll have a parent who, as you said, there, there was, there was something when their genes were checked that shows up that appears to perhaps be the cause, but the parent may be typically developing, may not have autism. So it seems like there's something called epigenetics going on, right? Um, Something in your genes and then something maybe in the environment that has precipitated um, the child to have the signs or symptoms of autism spectrum. Well, I know it's time for us to take our first break, and what we'll do is go on to our first break, and when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But listeners, please give us a call if you have a question or a comment about autism spectrum disorder, how your child was diagnosed, or perhaps whether or not you should take your child in for testing. I will say that there's been quite a bit of change over the last 20 years as to being able to identify a a genetic abnormality or not. Give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. We're talking about autism spectrum disorder. Anything you want to talk about, we will try to answer you. Any question that you have, and if we can't, we'll find the answer for you. This is Relatively Speaking. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Buttress. Children grow and change so fast, it's important to help them build the strong foundations they need to help develop lifelong skills and succeed in school. Whether it's singing songs in the car or counting steps while walking to the mailbox, there are many ways to help young children learn new skills and reach new developmental milestones. Even before they can talk, babies can make connections and respond to adults' words, sounds, and facial expressions by clapping, waving, or smiling back at them. Not only is it fun, but it's important to talk, read, and sing with children. More at MississippiThrive.com. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.
Welcome back, and thanks for listening. This is Relatively Speaking. I'm Dr. Susan Buttress here with Dr. Courtney Walker talking about the etiology, why autism spectrum disorder happens. But what I want us to do is is move into not just talking about the why, but talk a little bit more about the, the early symptoms of autism spectrum. And, you know, to answer any questions, listeners, that you might have, any comments that you have on the difficulties of you as you've tried to navigate through this, or maybe just questions. Maybe you don't have an individual that you even know. Unlikely, though, because it does occur in about 1 in 59. So it may be that co-worker who perhaps doesn't make good eye contact or obsessively talks about something who is a great worker and highly talented, but just a little quirky in their social skills. You are around someone with autism spectrum. So today's show is to hopefully give you a little bit better understanding about what it is and how it affects individuals. And then perhaps, um, how you can have a better understanding to help them through. Um, I don't know how many of you might have seen um, uh, uh, CBS World News. David Muir um, had uh, highlighted a, a young man with autism spectrum disorder who posted a letter to future employees employers that he had hoped to have and he he read his letter online and um, the letter actually went viral and he's gotten numerous job offers it's been pretty amazing and it just highlights how talented an individual with autism spectrum can be but people often don't realize it because as he read his letter, his voice inflection was a little bit different. It was a little bit stilted. Um, he did a great job, but it was really interesting uh, to be able to look at that. So join in the conversation, one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. 672 And well, I'd like to go ahead and bring in Pam Dollar. Um, who is a long-term friend, and she is executive director for the Mississippi Coalition for Citizens with Disabilities. And um, Pam has um, helped numerous parents and children of um, autism spectrum disorder but other disabilities. So welcome, Pam. Thanks for joining. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for having me, Susan. So, Pam... Tell us, if you will, just a little bit about your son, and and I'd like for you and Courtney to talk together a little bit about um, maybe some of your early struggles when he was young. Watson is, um, how old is Watson now? He will be 30 years old next week. Can wow. you believe that? <laughs> That's amazing. So so talk to us about um, what you saw early on that told you that there was something not quite typical in, in his development. Well, with Watson's particular situation and um, 
Dr. Walker and, and Dr. Buttress, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is probably in about 30% of the autism population. But he went through a period of seemingly typical development. Um, had um, By the time he was 16, 17 months old, had about 150-word vocabulary, never met a stranger, played with toys appropriately, pretty much did everything autism is not. And then over about a two-week period of, I mean, I'm sorry, two-month period of time, um, he lost his language down to about five words, started becoming socially withdrawn, really had a total personality change. And, of course, because his language development was really advanced for his age, I think. probably Absolutely, people, yeah. Yeah, most people. And I'll have to put the caveat out there. The 150-word vocabulary was mostly labeling. He was starting to put two words together, but it wasn't. You know, he wasn't, it was mostly labeling objects, which my mom kept him when he was young. And so she was like a speech therapist. She would walk around the house saying, look, clock, can you say clock, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and things like that. So he had a lot of, he was in a language rich environment in that way. But, um, but so that was the first clue that we had. And then he also started engaging in some uh, was the the loss of language, the fact that instead of now coming to us and, you know, handing me his cup and saying juice when he wanted juice, he would take me and put my hand on the door of the refrigerator um, or the handle of the refrigerator. He also, um, where before he had welcomed, you know, us to, you know, get down in the floor and play with him, he all of a sudden was like, if you tried to play with him, he would um, move away and you know so we started to become socially disconnected and then we started also to notice some kind of you know odd sensory things that were going on with him like um, you know avoiding certain certain textures and um, you know putting his hands over his ears at certain sounds and and so the sensory things were starting to emerge I think at that young age you know, and, and as a family who had never dealt with that before, we didn't really know the things to look for because I know early on we had people, you know, when we started going for our evaluations to try to figure out what was going on, we, um, they would ask us, does he have any sensory issues? And I would be like, no. And then they would, then they would say, well, does he do this? Does he do this? Mm -hmm. You know, does he not like having his hair washed or his, um, you know, we even went through a period of time where it was, horrible just trying to get a haircut um to the point that we we just bought a bought a set of clippers and his dad held him while he screamed and i cut his hair because it was it was such blood curdling screams there was no way to uh i I didn't want to subject any um hair salon to that and so but we gradually worked through all that and i think that's important for and i'm probably getting into treatment now but for young families to know that it it does get better with, you know, with some of the treatments and, you know, the sensory stuff in particular, desensitizing them, slowly exposing them to some of the things and just figuring out some techniques. But so that, that was how we mm-hmm. knew something was going on. And of course, we mentioned it to his pediatrician first, who First, we thought there was hearing loss, that he could not hear us because he wouldn't respond to his name. And and that's um, typical, right? 
that right. that often you do think that oh my goodness maybe this child is not hearing and that's a good first thought too right yeah and so of course we began to have medical tests and rule right. things out um, I think his pediatrician pediatrician at the time was Dr Julia Sherwood we were very fortunate because she was very connected with you know the, the people like Dr Buttress who um, were working in the child development field in the state. And um, I, I'll, I'll never forget the the visit we were at when she actually left the room and, and went and called you, Dr. Buttress. And, and, um, and I think she came back and said, you know, she thinks we may be dealing with a child who's on the autism spectrum, you know. And so that was kind of our first clue that that might be what we're dealing with. And, well, and I will have to say my mom, who kept him and of course was very observant he was her first grandchild but she had raised four children too so um she was the one who first alerted me to and say you know Pam I really think something's going on with Watson and I'm like I don't I don't know mom I think he's just he was the first grandchild on either side he was our first child like I think he's just figured out how to get everybody to leave him alone and she was like no I think it's more than that Mm. and then she actually read an article in a magazine and said you know, it was about autism and she's, I think it was in Red Book or something. And so um, she said, Pam, I read this article and I think maybe the, and, and I was like, no, 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 that's not what it is. Cause you know, no one wants to think that, you know, their child has something uh, going on as significant as autism. And so there is on the part of many families, there is some denial at the beginning. And so, um, but anyway, that was kind of our, how we figured out something was going on was, you know, the first clue for us because his language was so developed that there, you know, he was beginning to lose that. And so we knew and we started. Right. So um, one thing, you're absolutely right. A certain percentage of children um, will have a loss of skills like that. They'll typically Mm -hmm. develop and then around that 15, 18 month period have have a decline um some don't some are always um delayed and and do not connect and do not make good eye contact early on but i think um our java and michelle in the booth are are, were just talking and and pointing out how important and i think this is a great time Courtney, for for the two of us to just say a couple of words about the importance of developmental screening, of to know what normal developmental milestones are, um, and and ask your pediatrician for a, a screener if you feel like something is not right about your child, and every child should get developmental screening at their well-child checks at 9, 18, and 24 months. So, Courtney, do you want to expand a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, And, you know, I'm going to jump on that train. Um, Early detection and screening for all delays, but particularly for autism spectrum disorder, is very, very, very crucial to um, just their overall prognosis and um, kind of the effectiveness of some of the treatments that are going to be are going to be recommended. So, when we're talking about screening for autism, there's a couple of tools out there that are appropriate um, and that can be used. But 
you know, like I said, you also need to be screening for other developmental milestones like motor, language skills, social skills, and things like that. But particularly for children on the autism spectrum, um, unless, you know, they have um, kind of a regression, like Pam was suggesting, a lot of them just have difficulty in language acquisition from the get-go. So, um, you know, autism is deficits in language and communication and also the presence of that repetitive and restrictive kind of behavior. But typically you start to see more of those deficits in language and communication first, especially in toddlers. And so they might be able to name objects, they might be able to label, but are they using language as a problem solving tool? So are they able to say, you know, juice and look at you and look at your, make eye contact while saying juice and then looking at the juice bottle and looking back to you, which is what we call a joint attention. So are they able to kind of use their nonverbal skills, so eye contact, gestures, things like that, in addition to verbalizations or vocalizations to let you know, hey, that's what I want. I need you to get that for me. And a lot of times um, toddlers on the autism spectrum just have a really hard time coordinating all of those systems. And so early detection, and I'm talking as young as, you know, we're getting down to 16 months, that, you know, you can make a diagnosis that young. Of course, you need to rule out some other things first, but um, you can diagnose in toddlerhood. And um, the, as I was saying earlier, the older convention was kind of like, well, we need to diagnose early. So by the age of five, we can actually get some functional language out of children. But some newer research has come out that really um, first words, and when I say first words, that's not mama, dada, that's some kind of word that has a communicative intent to it. Children who on the spectrum who have a first word by 24 months of age tend to do a little bit better. And so we're pushing that um, age that, that we kind of gauge um, prognosis at further and further into toddlerhood. So that just really emphasizes the importance of early detection through screening um, so we can get children into the services to start to address some of the symptoms of autism spectrum disorder and, you know, give them a, a good shot of at, you know, um, school and, and things like that as they grow up. Okay, great. Well, I, we have our first caller, and I want to go to our caller before we go to the break. We have Terry from Tupelo. Hi, Terry. I love the show. Um, my son, who's 20 now, has high-functioning autism. We called it back in the day Asperger's. Right. And so we did. We lived in North, North Carolina at the time. We had, took him to Wake Forest, and he uh, he had an evaluation. So we knew kind of what was going on. We moved back to Mississippi, and I would highly recommend if your child is going to be educated in the public school system to go to the district office and request an IEP. Right. Individualized Education Plan, IEP, yes. Yep, and it's so important, and it really helped him as he went through the public school system. So definitely, definitely you want to do that. And, and I just want to make sure that everyone is aware of that. 
Terry, thank you for bringing that up. And I think that is something that both Dr. Walker and Pam Dollar can speak to because Pam often has to help parents know how to advocate for their child. And you're absolutely right. Um, I think so many times um, schools will say, um, oh, your child doesn't qualify for special services. Now, I can't believe somebody didn't know what an IEP was because it is federal law. Of course, that was 20 years ago. We're doing better now, or not 20, 15, but still. Pam, um, maybe do you want to comment a little bit about um, what you can request and how you should request uh, to go about getting that individualized education plan? Yes, absolutely. So the first thing I want people to understand is that a medical diagnosis and an educational ruling for services in the school district are two totally separate things. Um, we at the Coalition for Citizens with Disabilities, which is where I work, we have a, um, a federal grant where we assist parents in um, in obtaining services under IDEA um, and Section 504 as well. But um, our grant is provided to the U.S. Department of Education to provide training and information and support to parents who have children with disabilities. It's, it's, we cover the entire state of Mississippi. And I can go ahead and throw out our phone number now. If, if you are a parent and you're listening and you need help, navigating the school system, if you need training, if you just need a packet of information. Um, our number is 601-969-0601. And you can call us. We will connect you with one of our parent educators. Um, they're located, we have the state divided up into five regions and they're located in the different regions of the state. And they can help you navigate and work through any any problems you're having. Or like I said, if you're just getting started, just information about the process. But the first step in that process is to request an evaluation. Because as I said, just having that medical diagnosis does not automatically qualify you for services under, under IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, which those services would be provided through that IEP, or Individualized Education Program. <clears throat> that was mentioned earlier. And so um, you go through an evaluation and there's certain criteria that you have to meet um, to be eligible for services. So the first thing that happens is a request. I, we do recommend that parents um, request that evaluation in writing. Um, once you get to to the point where you think your child may need services, it's best to you know, put everything in writing and also keep a copy of it um, you know, need to start documenting as well as possible. And that can, and you know, that request can be in an email. An email is considered in writing and just keep a copy of the email on a file on your computer. So it doesn't have to be complicated record keeping, okay? Uh, but anyway, request that evaluation. The school district then um, conducts the evaluation and, um, and then a team of people come together, which is the eligibility team and looks and see if the child qualifies for special education under IDEA, special education services. And then at that point is when they would write the individualized education program to decide, you know, what services and supports that that child needs in order to ensure that they receive a free, appropriate public education to prepare them for 
further education, employment, and independent living. So, and like I said, that's, that's, you know, very much in a nutshell. And so if you have any questions about that process along the way, do not hesitate to reach out to our centers called the Mississippi Parent Training and Information Center. And many people shorten it to MSPTI. And so um, feel free to contact us and we'll be glad to help any way we can. And honestly, it can be so very much help because sometimes it's a daunting task to to take this on, especially when you are uh, you you see your child struggling, and and many of these children with autism spectrum disorder do struggle academically, um, not because they all have an intellectual disability, but many of them do have such difficulty with certain areas, um, particularly in the abstract thinking. So a child might read well, um, read the words well, but not be able to have good reading comprehension because um, of just the inability to understand all the language that is part of that. So, um, Courtney, Dr. Walker, will you talk a little bit about what type of testing is done? Before that, uh, though, I'm going to throw out our phone number. We're going to—I'd really love to hear from more of you. Thank you, Terry, for calling in. Um, we'll talk about whatever area you'd like to speak in this area of autism spectrum, or whether or not you think. You have an individual with that. Give us a call at one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. We have all open lines. Okay, now Dr. Walker, I'm going to turn it over to you for a minute. So, so when a child comes in for the evaluation of autism, I will say they get a medical workup, and they should. We need to always make sure that they can see well, they can hear well, that they're. There's not any kind of metabolic, any kind of thyroid or anemia or deficiency that a child has that might be interfering with their learning. Um, A good physical exam, a good medical exam. But once that is done, um, it is very important to have a psychological exam. And I'll turn that over to you now, Dr. Walker. Talk to us about what that means. Yeah, sure. So it, you know, it, it kind of depends based on the kid and based on the age of the kid, but generally um, autism evaluations, or at least the ones that, you know, we, um, that we conduct are considered comprehensive. So um, they often include some sort of assessment of cognitive or intellectual functioning um, or functioning in other developmental areas as well. They also include some sort of standardized observation of ASD-specific type behaviors. And so um, that can sometimes clinicians just do kind of a, their own kind of unstructured type of thing. Um, but usually it'll include things like, for younger kids, you know, response to name. How do they initiate joint attention? Um, how do they bring and share and show things to you? But there's a, um, there's a couple of really gold standard um, autism assessments that we really like to use. Um, the biggest one being the ADOS or the 
autism diagnostic observation schedule, um, short for ADOS is a lot easier to say. Um, so that's really kind of considered one of the gold standard ASD specific uh, assessments that we do. Um, but I want to just really emphasize the importance of getting the other aspects looked at too, like language and intellectual functioning. Because sometimes um, children just have kind of what we would call a cognitive delay um, that could be you know, attributed to other things that we need to rule out. But sometimes children have a language delay um, or expressive language delay, and they just have trouble producing words, but they're able to kind of use their other nonverbal language skills, if you will, like eye contact, gestures, pointing, things like that. Even when they're not saying any words, they could just be saying, you know, jibber jabber, but you still know that your child is trying to say something to you. So that's why that language component is so important to, to also assess during that comprehensive um, ASD evaluation. Right. And, and when and and when you have a child who is making that eye contact and has that joint attention that you were talking about, that leads you away from the diagnosis of autism spectrum and toward a speech language disorder without right. autism, right? Right. So, Dr. Walker um, and Pam, we're going to go to our next break. And when we come back, we have Kay and Madison on the line. We have open line, so give us a call. We have just a few more minutes of the show. That's one eight seven seven mpb ring 877-672-7464. Join in the conversation. We're talking about autism spectrum disorder from birth to adulthood. This is Relatively Speaking. We'll be right back. foundation of your child's brain is being built in the first five years of life. This construction is strengthened through the child's interactions with others. Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Buttress. The good news is you have what it takes to be a brain builder. Learn more at MississippiThrive.com. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome back and thanks for listening. I'm Dr. Susan Buttress here with Dr. Courtney Walker and Pam Dollar. We're talking about autism spectrum disorder. And just a little tidbit, the first person diagnosed with autism spectrum, with autism, was diagnosed in Mississippi, and his name was Donald Gray Triplett. He was born in Forest, Mississippi. So you people from Forest listening, that is something that you need to know about your city. All right, let's go on to the phones. We have Kay in Madison. Kay, you're going to tell us about a state resource. Yes, how are you guys? Great. I work at a community health center, um, and throughout the state of Mississippi, at certain community health centers and at um, 
local health departments. The Department of Health has a program, um, it's a long name, but it's called Children and Youth with Special Health Care Needs. So I'll just repeat that again in case someone is listening or writing it down. It's called Children and Youth with Special Health Care Needs. Um, the acronym, some people call it SHINE, some people call it TEN. But within local health departments or local community health centers, there are staff who, free of charge, provide case management for children with health care needs, and that includes autism spectrum. It provides case management um, and searches for a medical and a dental home for children. Um, they have staff there who also, each person within the, that program has a child with a special health care needs as a requirement for employment. And they help parents with support groups. Um, they help them find um, resources, materials, respite, transportation. They help with medication management. Um, they help make appointments. Um, any, pretty much kind of like anything that the parent or the child might need in the um, spectrum of taking care of the child within that special diagnosis, which in your topic today is autism, the staff are there to help um, parents through that. Um, at our health center, we've helped parents with um, devices, resources, helping them to get respite or enrolled in daycare or programs where parents can kind of get a little bit break. So um, if someone um, feels like they're kind of overwhelmed or they just need some other person to help, there should be a resource in your county or a neighboring county that can help you one-on-one um, -on -one if they're open due to COVID or over the phone. Uh, with a, a, a broad range of, of needs that you might have. So, Kay, great information. How does a parent who's listening right now go, I, I need respite right now? So <laughs> yes, how, do yes. they, how do they access that? Um, it, it, respite is um, kind of like the, the toss-up amongst the group of everything that I've listed. Everything that I've listed, we can help with or, or the mm -hmm. staff at that particular place can help with. Respite sometimes depends on insurance. But um, if they go, if they just type in their search bar, MSDH, which stands for Mississippi State Department of Health, and children with special health care needs, they should be directed to the Department of Health page. On that page, it has a link to the contact person for the region that you live in. Um, I think there's five regions within the Department of Health. And it also lists the, the neighboring community health centers who have staff who do the same. Um, in Madison County, where we are, um, we're at GA Carmichael in Canton, and there are various health centers throughout the state that most people may be familiar with the name. It's a, it's The service is free of charge, and we are here to assist parents, um, even if they just need somebody to talk to. We have some parents that don't need anything. They have everything that they need, but... We just talked to them on the phone. Great. Kay, you know what? Um, I'm going to make sure that is on our website, the okay. Mississippi Thrive website. Um, and so if you if you will. Um, I can send an email. That would be great. Uh, and also another name to Google, um, and I'm, I'll have to email her and tell her that I did this, but the, the program um, manager over the entire state of Mississippi, her name is Augusta. Just, just spell the, the 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 month of August with the A. Augusta Bilbro, B I L B R O. Okay. If you Google well, her name. She'll also be on that website. I know. I know Augusta. Okay. Okay. We <laughs> will do that. Okay. okay. Thank you so much. 
Okay, we have another caller that I want to make sure that we can get to them. Why don't we go to Felicity in Clarksdale? Hi, Felicity. Hi, how are you? Great. Thanks for calling. Yes, ma'am. Okay, so I am visiting from... I'm visiting Clarksville, Mississippi, from Louisiana, and I have autism myself, and I have been trying to get into the workforce community and the workforce for, oh, my goodness, a long time, and I'm 22, so I just started getting into the workforce. Well, I found a resource in Louisiana called the Louisiana Rehabilitation Services, and I'm not sure if Mississippi has one of those. But they helped me get a job coach, and a job coach is somebody who helps me get a job, keep a job, and is through the whole process. They help you make a resume. They help you build relationships mm-hmm. with the um, with the employer. So she's as I'm here, she is doing all that for me, and it's a free service in Louisiana. And I'm not sure if Mississippi has one of those, but if y'all want to look it up, then it's a it's a great resource. Great, really Felicity. Me. Well, good luck in that. Thank, Thank you. you for calling and bringing that up, Pam. Can you comment on that in the next minute or so about um, potentially job coaches out there for young adults? Yes, um, through the well, we we've, we've got a couple of um, Medicaid waivers in our state that provide job coaches. One of those, and and I'm glad we got to this because I did want to mention this, it's through the, um, you first have to be qualified for Medicaid, and then you can qualify for one of the waivers. But one of those waivers, and the one that most people on the autism spectrum um, access, is the the IDD waiver, Mm -hmm. or Intellectual Developmental Disability waiver, and, and it does provide job coaches. Also, we do have a Department of Rehab Services in Mississippi, and I would encourage people to contact them. If you have a child who's who's an adult or about to be an adult or age out of the school system, which is 21 in our state, then you really need to get connected with them and see what they might be able to provide because there are there is an independent living waiver that some people might qualify as well. But the the important thing for families to know about that IDD waiver is there's a there's about a 10-year waiting list for that waiver in our state. And so if your child is very young, go ahead and get them on that waiting list now. Did you or, hear that, I- listeners? Don't don't wait on the IDD waiver. And unfortunately, we are out of time. I just, Felicity, thank you for that call. Um, Pam, thank you for everything that you've done over the years and you continue to do. And um, Dr. Walker? As usual, it was a delight having you. So, listeners, if you'd like to hear the show again or any past episodes, you can listen to the podcast on your favorite podcast app by searching Southern Remedy Relatively Speaking. This show is a production of MPB Think Radio and engineered by Michelle McAdoo. I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, and I truly hope you'll join us next Tuesday at 11 for Relatively Speaking and that you'll stay tuned. For NPR's Here and Now, coming up next on MPB Think Radio.